Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today is day 177 of Occupy Wall Street. And I'm sorry that I have to begin with some sad news, but our dear friend and psychedelic pioneer, Gary Fisher, has passed on to his next adventure. Of all the uh, research that was done in the early years of this uh, psychedelic resurgence, uh, Gary's, I think, was probably the most far-reaching and most promising, and uh, unfortunately, it will most likely never be repeated. As you know, uh, Gary achieved some really amazing breakthroughs with autistic and schizophrenic children. Breakthroughs that, uh, had his research been allowed to continue, might well have uh, resulted in cures for these terrible diseases. Although uh, Gary and I had quite a few conversations over the years, he generally didn't want me to record them. Fortunately, of course, uh, I was able to convince him a few times, and so I think we have about six podcasts here in the salon that feature Gary and uh, some of his stories. But just to give you a very brief idea of his involvement with the early resurgence of psychedelics, in addition to his pioneering research work, it was uh, Gary Fisher who guided Timothy Leary on his very first LSD trip. And it was uh, Gary uh, who, uh, well, along with his wife and three small children, accompanied Leary and his group to their Mexican retreat and then on to, uh, through their romp through the Caribbean and finally to Millbrook during the early days there. Uh, and I'll put a link to the uh, Gary Fisher archive along with the notes for today's podcast. Uh, and if you get a chance, you may want to revisit a few of those podcasts and uh, see if perhaps the work of Gary Fisher might inspire you to pursue a career in psychedelic research now that the uh, field is once again becoming respectable. On a more cheery note, I am very happy to report that the last of the videos from the workshop that Bruce Damer and I gave in January has now been posted on YouTube. Also, I should note, our uh, next event, which is a weekend workshop that will be held at the Esalen Institute in California, is now about two-thirds full. So, it looks like we'll be having a full house for that event, which will actually be my very first visit to that fabled home of so many of the Terrence McKenna lectures that we've heard here in the salon. And from what I know about some of the people who will be attending, uh, I think it's going to be a very fascinating weekend, and one in which those in attendance will most likely uh, remember for a long time. And one more thing before I introduce today's talk is that I want to thank our fellow saloners who either bought a copy of one of my books or who made a direct donation to help offset some of the expenses associated with uh, producing and distributing these podcasts. You uh, truly are the ones who are making this all possible, and uh, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And uh, hopefully I already got a thank you uh, out in the email to each of you already. Now, the interview that I'm going to play for you right now may be the most important program that I've done so far here in the salon. It took place a couple of weeks ago when my friend Matt Palomary came over and we called Jim Fadiman to talk about his new book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, which may also be one of the most important books that you'll ever own. 
As you already know, if you've been here with us in the salon for a while, uh, Jim, or I should say Dr. James Fadiman, to be more precise, is one of the last of the original psychedelic researchers from the 60s who is uh, still very active. He was a research associate with the International Foundation for Advanced Study that Myron Stolaroff and others founded, and which is well documented in John Markoff's brilliant book, What the Dormouse Said. Uh, well, in 1975, along with uh, Roger Frager, uh, Jim also co-founded the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. Now, the reason I think that this interview is so important is that it can easily serve as an introduction to all things psychedelic for anyone that's uh, interested in these sacred medicines. But most importantly, I'm suggesting that, uh, well, that this is a podcast that maybe parents can play for their children as they come of age and begin to investigate the exploration of consciousness. And uh, also, as strange as this may sound, this would be a great program for our younger saloners to play for their parents, uh, particularly parents who missed the first phase of the psychedelic resurgence and themselves know little or nothing about uh, how to better approach these substances. Although I planned on cutting out all of our initial conversation where we were just kind of shooting the breeze, I decided to leave in a, a little part of it and pick up in the middle of our chat just before I turned it over to Matt for the interview itself. Uh, and, and here it is. We're all still trying to save the world. <laughs> you know, uh, for a while there, I, when I stopped trying to save myself, uh, I, I uh, or stopped trying to save the world, I wasn't saving myself. So I got back on board here after a few years off. You know, I feel the same way. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and and you know, I'm so encouraged by all the uh, the Occupy movement, which I've gotten kind of deeply involved in, just uh, you know, by by following it and podcasting about it, but. Uh, it's it's amazing the people I've met through that the cross section of people involved. Uh, it's it's uh, very very encouraging to think. Very that, uh, encouraging. Yeah. Also, a large percentage of them came to some of their conclusions by using sacred substances. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, uh, and they're not afraid to admit it. You know. So. Exactly. No, that's a real difference. Yeah. So uh, so everything that you guys did in the '60s is starting to pay off now. Well, I'll just give you one little fascinating moment. And uh, I asked the people in Santa Cruz, this is 360 people, um, you know, how many use this and that? And very high, very high percentage because they came to my talk. And then I said, how many of you have parents who use psychedelics? About 80%. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> There's hope for the world. <laughs> well, so we're getting the second generation of people who are comfortable with psychedelics yeah that's that's really that's that's worth following up on and, and doing a little research I th that's that's a very encouraging statistic it's a, a second wave yeah. yeah so that's really that's really new yeah that's that's brand new information there and and I'd like to go ahead and play that in the podcast if it's okay sure good let's bring it up okay. we'll do All right. okay so, yeah so you know we're gonna go about an hour or so give or take there's no set time on this okay and um, what I thought I'd do is talk a little bit about sort of my experience and play it off against yours a little bit because mine was sure. totally insane and yours was more organized. And then uh, I have read your book, so I'll just dip into some topics here and there. And if there's anything you want to, you know, uh, yeah. elaborate on, you know. Don't worry. Yeah, I know. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm going to start out and say. Okay. 
Um, welcome to the Psychedelic Salon once again. Today, uh, Matteo here, and Lorenzo sitting by. And I'm very happy today to have as a guest on our show, James Fadiman, Ph.D., who I know is Jim. And uh, Jim and I met 10 or 12 years ago, I think, at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference. Right. And I'm here to talk today, and Jim is here today, to talk about his newest book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. But before we do that, I want to mention that uh, when I met Jim at the uh, Santa Barbara Conference, he had recently published his novel, The Other Side of Hate, H-A-I-G-H-T. And um, we, uh, we connected, we met, we connected, and we traded novels. And I have to say, it's a, it's a really uh, well-written novel, so I'm giving it a plug here. Because, um, it, you know, anybody who's younger uh, has heard about the big uh, San Francisco scene in the summer of love in the 60s and all that. And uh, the other side of hate is, to me, a, a really good, though fictional, uh, slice of that. And uh, the funny thing about fiction is, one of the definitions of fiction is that you're telling lies to tell the truth. Right. And so I felt that uh, it was, you know, a good cross-section of that. So I'm giving a plug for that, The Other Side of Hate, H-A-I-G-H-T, because it is a well-written novel, and Jim's, Jim's an accomplished writer. Well, I'm very grateful for that kind of a compliment, and uh, as this, I've been getting some, some letters about that novel. It's been out of print for a while, and I'm going to bring it back. Yeah. Because there's still, there's still a lot of nonsense about uh, the hate in the 60s that's out there, and it's nice when there's a somewhat realistic novel that is useful. Right, and it tells some truth. Um, if you don't mind, too, I'm going to give a little uh, of Jim's background. Uh, I, I've come into my psychedelic research through the back door or the side door or, the, or almost the jailhouse door. Uh, I have not been uh, on top of things in that way, but I've been coming around slowly, whereas Jim has been on it all along. So... Uh, he did his undergraduate work at Harvard and his graduate work at Stanford, doing research with the Harvard Group, the West Coast Research Group in Menlo Park, and Ken Kesey. He's a former president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and a professor of psychology. He teaches at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, which he helped found in 1975. He's an international conference presenter and a workshop leader, a management consultant, and he's authored several books and textbooks. And uh, I'm going to just go on just a little bit more. Sure. This is uh, on the book here. It says, called America's wisest and most respected authority on psychedelics and their use. James Fadiman has been involved with psychedelic research since the 60s. In this guide, meaning uh, the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide here, uh, I lost my spot there. In this guide to the immediate and long-term effects of psychedelic use for spiritual parentheses, high-dose, therapeutic, moderate-dose, and problem-solving, low-dose purposes. Fadiman outlines best practices for safe, sacred, entheogenic voyages learned through his more than 40 years of experience from the benefits of having a sensitive guide during a session and how to be one to the importance of the setting and pre-session pre intention. So Jim has done a lot of, I was really amazed uh, at the amount of work he's done and how organized and uh, methodical he was. So let me start off uh, just by uh, poking at your brain, Jim, and uh, mm -hmm. ask you about the book just a little bit. What prompted you to write this book? 
Well, I, um, I've written an essay about kind of the events when the government stopped all our research. Mm-hmm. And it was a, just a fun essay for a book on, on the 60s that, a, that it turns out their history classes on the 60s. Mm-hmm. And a good writer friend of mine said, you know, there's a whole book in there. And I thought, oh, memoir, me, interesting, famous. Who have I been next to? Who have I slept with? Who did I take drugs with? <laughs> and so I spent a couple of months actually researching myself, old documents, old diaries, and and also reading a lot of the things that I should have known about at the time. You know, when you are doing a memoir, actually you're talking about your own era where you weren't conscious about it. And then I had this great epiphany, which is, who cares? And the, the list was so small. It was kind of less than my Christmas card list. <laughs> so then I had, you know, but I'd done all this work. And then I thought, well, do I know anything that other people don't know? And I realized that I've been involved with pretty much all the different kinds of research that had been done on psychedelics. And that I have individual friends who've been specialists in one or another, but I actually had a pretty, you know, kind of bird's eye view. And so I started to put down the things that I felt were being lost, kind of lost lore. And from that came the book. It's it's really, really well done. You know, I'm going to talk just a little bit about my own experience and then uh, dovetail it into yours because yours uh, opened my eyes a little bit. For me, other than uh, sniffing glue about 1969, which was my first quote-unquote psychedelic experience, I discovered LSD in 71, and I grew up in Boston. And we used to get it from a chemist who went by the name of My Favorite Martian, and he was at MIT, which we used to call Mental Institute for the Touched. And that stuff then was like four-way. I think it was probably 250 mics. And I just kept getting my brains blown out over and over again, and I couldn't stop myself. And I just got all messed up and went all over the place. But I never uh, connected any uh, spirituality with it or all that. I just liked getting really blasted and into the altered states. And so then I went through many years of many substances, and then I finally got to a point where I thought, I need to get baseline again and stop everything and really take a good hard look, which I did for 13 years. Mm. And then it wasn't until uh, reading Terrence McKenna, uh, Food of the Gods, mm. that I even thought, wow, there could be a spirituality in this? <laughs> and, you know, intention and purpose and, and, you know, psychological growth. So I delved back into it from that perspective. And, you know, one thing led to another, and I've had a number of really life-changing experiences. And I met some really incredibly amazing people, such as yourself and Lorenzo and, and you know, Sasha Shulgin and uh, Oscar yeah. Janiger, lots of good, great people. And so then I started getting into the research of what everybody's been done, and that's what's fascinating me the most because there were approaches I never would have even imagined, which is kind of what I'm leading up to now. Uh, you, you talked about using, you know, uh, high dose for spiritual purposes, moderate dose for problem solving, and I thought that section on problem solving was fascinating. Uh, and then uh, the low dose. You want to give us a, maybe a, a, a spin on sort of each one from, you know, yeah. your, own, your own words and perspective? Let's go through the the kind of high dose fairly quickly because the people who I know listen to to this know about it, which is 
a high dose is the chance for a transcendent, spiritual, unitive, um, Atman is, uh, you are, you are the soul of the universe, a kind of universally letting go of personal identity and realizing your identification with everything else. And that is really best done with a guide. Mm-hmm. Then, then that's, and that's a high dose, when I say high dose, up to 400 mics. Wow. Above that, you begin to not bring back or retain much. You may have an experience, but you don't really gain much from it. Right. And below that, around 200 micrograms is psychotherapeutic, where you get incredible insights about yourself, and you don't, but you don't lose your identity. You're still you. You're just finding out that you can be you without a lot of your neuroses and just bizarre beliefs. Just talked to a young man yesterday who said he had this really tough experience with such and such a drug, and I said, what happened? He said, all my beliefs turned out to be false. <laughs> and I said, sounds like a pretty good experience to me. Yeah. And he suddenly got it and laughed. So that's that, that level. Uh-huh. And those are ones I think a lot of us know about, and... But when you get down to, say, 100 micrograms, it turns out with a, with a lot of set and setting, a lot of very careful putting a scene together, that people with serious scientific problems, which in a sense almost obsess them because they're so important to them, can actually have scientific breakthroughs. And they're, they're only, at this point, only two Nobel Prize winners have acknowledged the, how the use of psychedelics helped them become Nobel Prize winners. But the work that we did with senior scientists in half a dozen fields and architects and designers was quite mind-blowing in terms of how much people could focus not on the universal truths, not on that we're all loving beings, and not on their own psychological issues, but literally staying tightly focused on the problems that matter to them enormously in this world. And when I say scientific breakthroughs, the nice thing is when you have scientists with problems, you're not, you're not driven to kind of give them some little test and say they went from a six to an eight. But you find out, did the company produce the product? Was, was the idea patented? Uh, did a peer of your journal publish the ideas. And that was our criteria. And we had a little other criteria, which is what we noticed is when one member of a research team would come through our little, you know, our kind of little study we were doing, is a couple of weeks later, someone else or two or three from the same research group would contact us and ask, was there any room in, in the study? <laughs> so that they could see in their colleague and in the work they were doing together, real breakthroughs. So that's an area that is that I, I get now and then people very, very seriously looking at that because an awful lot of people in Silicon Valley started an awful lot of companies uh, and they uh, quietly credit a lot of their own breakthroughs to starting those companies to their own psychedelic use. So it's really made a huge difference in the culture even though the scientific and medical establishment hasn't spoken about it. Yeah. So that's one area. But you uh-huh. asked about two. Right. So let me talk a little bit about um, what's called microdosing, 
or 10 micrograms um, or a fifth to a tenth of what you would take if you were taking a psilocybin experience. Basically, a little bit. And a little bit is such that it's called subperceptual, meaning there's no visual excitement. As someone said, the rocks don't glitter even a little. So it's definitely not a psychedelic effect. And the effect turns out to be uh, what someone else described as an all-chakra enhancer, which is it seems to be for people who, who have experimented with these very low doses, that they simply have a more successful day, that they're not more creative, but they're creative longer. And they also report they're a little nicer, they're a little more accepting of people's faults, that they eat a little more closer to healthy, that they may do, you know, one more set of reps at the gym. Not, not a big deal. But, you know, at the end of some days you say, gee, I just had a great day. And that seems to be the general report. Now, for some people they say, uh, this is not for me. It doesn't feel, you know, they're, they're somehow a little bit excited or a little bit upset. And so they say, this doesn't work for me. And so they stop. So in the research I've done so far, I've had no, no uh, negative effect. And I've had some people that said, I don't think this is something I want to do. So that's a whole area, again, that I'm very much interested in exploring. That's, that's great. Uh, you know, I'd be curious about your thoughts, my own thoughts bubbling around here. Through my years of personal research and experimentation, um, I've kind of come to the conclusion, and, and I don't know if how much of this is original. I may have read some of it somewhere, but I've kind of come to the conclusion that uh, psychedelics, LSD in particular, but even, even ayahuasca and other ones, are generally amplifiers, and that if... Uh, you know, people would say to me, oh, oh, gee, uh, that was badass and I had a bad trip. Well, that wasn't the case. They had some issues inside that they weren't aware of that came up. Well, also, they may have had amplified some things that were because of a bad situation. Exactly. So if you're with someone, for instance, you don't really trust and you amplify that, you can have a very paranoid experience. That That's my point. So that, to, for me, it's sort of an overall amplifier. So... Whatever's inside there, if you take a big, you know, a big dose and you have, you have these revelations of things that were inside of you, you weren't really aware of. And then through the degrees of taking it down to the lower levels, uh, for me, it is a, a perceptual enhancer. Um, you know, Terrence McKenna talked about the, the hominids coming out of the trees and then eating the mushrooms and, and, and uh, mushrooms at small doses enhance, uh, edge yeah. perception. It's, it's, Let's say it's as good an explanation as any. <laughs> and it's a lot more fun than the ones that you get in the anthropology books where uh, the, the trees kind of gave way to the grasslands, and so they had to walk a lot, and it was easier to walk upright, and their brains got bigger. Yeah. That's hard to buy. Right. But what we do know, and this is actually very new research, and uh, the I just did some work I'm talking at Santa Cruz, and my host, uh, Andrew Kornfeld uh, mm. was telling me about the way he's now understanding how psychedelics work. And what he used was a term called neuroplasticity. Oh, yeah. Which is that the brain is capable of making new connections. And that it looks like, 
and this is what neuroscience is moving toward. It looks like what psychedelics do, on the one hand, is they allow the brain to make a huge amount of connections very quickly. Mm-hmm. And those connections literally feel like you are connected to more parts of yourself and parts of nature and so forth. Right. That's one piece that we now have a way of thinking about it, and also that a bad experience and a very negative experience or a trauma in the real world uh, diminishes connections because you, you kind of withdraw from the hmm. whatever happens. Yeah. And literally, your brain becomes, says, well, let's cut off as many connections as we can so we don't have to feel the pain. That's amazing. So that's a, that's a nice notion. Yeah. And then, then there's some wonderful research just a couple of weeks out uh, where they gave psilocybin intravenously to people and basically watched their brains for the 15 minutes that intravenous psilocybin seems to, to have as its peak. I do not recommend this. Yeah, this don't try this bad. at home. <laughs> do not do this at home. <laughs> and what they found is to, and it's wonderful, is that blood flow changes in different parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. And rather than all kinds of interesting things being amped up in blood flow, what they found is the parts of the brain that deal with personal identity was diminished. Mm-hmm. So literally, if you're in a good, safe setting with a psychedelic, and these again are the higher doses, um, yourself or your personality gets out of the way. Mm-hmm. And that suddenly makes all the spiritual traditions which talk about that make more sense. Yeah, right. So it's like all of that magnificence that you get with psychedelics is always available, because that's also the way it feels, Right. but that we get in the way. Yeah. And that that makes so much sense to me. So I'm very excited with that as as very new connecting research that says, gee, science actually can help us understand the quality of mystical experience. Yeah, it's almost kind of a bridge between the, 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 the physiology and the psychology. There's always been that gap. Right, right, because the physiologist said, oh, we don't have any idea what's going on. Yeah, 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 right. It doesn't, doesn't fit into this thing. That, you know, the whole part about rewiring the brain I've always found fascinating, too, Um you know, I read for years that ayahuasca rewires the brain, and, and um, I've gone, you know, into the Amazon numerous times doing the dietas. And one of the things that fascinated me is that when you do the dieta in the jungle, in the tradition I've been working in, you don't get any salt for 10 days. Right. And, you know, that's kind of ancient wisdom. And then some years ago, I read a study, um, and they did a study with rats. And they deprived them of salt for a period of time, and then they gave it to them. And when they gave it to them, it stimulated neuronal growth. Wow. So, to me, it's like they knew, you know, years and years and years and years ago, they would give you the experience in there, and then they would more or less kind of tattoo it into your brain. Wow, because I know that the, you know, ayahuasca is a whole different world than than LSD or mescaline or or, uh, so forth, or even psilocybin. Right. Partly because you're doing it in a very special setting with someone with with 15 to 30 years of training. Right. And the other is that you're connecting deliberately to one part of the universe, namely the spirit world, mm-hmm. 
that in the West we simply have kind of lost touch. So yes. it's a whole, and again, in both cases, you, the personality, has to get out of the way. Exactly. It's, it, it really is fascinating because even in, in the spiritual traditions and, and the medicine men and all that, uh, it's all about sort of getting out of the way. There's an old medicine man, I think he was sued by the name of Fool's Crow, and he, he was a great healer and he called himself a hollow tube because he said, it's not me, it's just coming through me. Yeah. And uh, the other thing I'm always quoting for some reason is that some years ago they interviewed all the people they considered to be geniuses. And every one of them to the person said, it's not me. Yeah. So, you know, there's something here in terms of connecting with what's what's bigger than us. Well, we've, we've had it in the West, but it's kind of been pushed off to the side, where in the arts we talk about the muses, who are these spirit beings who have get you to be a better poet or a better sculptor or a better painter, and that they help you. And then yeah. you get to the, the wisdoms traditions, such as your wind with ayahuasca, where they say, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, right. How else do you think you can do that stuff unless you have the spirit world assisting you? Yeah. So um, maybe it's, as we get out of the way, not only is, you know, we get amplified, but also we can pick up these other stations. Right. That's a good analogy right there. Yeah, Maslow used to talk about that the there was this very small voice that basically would tell you to do the right thing. Yeah. And he said the problem is that it's not very loud. And if you have other voices inside of you that are loud, you can't hear it. The, yeah, the still small voice within. Right. Yeah. And uh, my understanding, and you can elaborate, my understanding is the idea is to sort of get the whole band singing the same tune. Yeah, and what we're doing is beginning to bring together, you know, Western science, Eastern kind of spiritual science of understanding consciousness, and really the kind of South American plant wisdom, uh, and they're all converging in this picture of a, of a being, us, with an enormously greater capacity for, on the one hand, love and compassion, we know that Buddhists who meditate for 20 years, the part of their brains that deals with compassion literally has enlarged. And on the other hand, um, scientific problem solving, because scientists, that's the part of their brain that's been enlarged. And so in a sense, what we're getting is that psychedelics not only are amplifiers, but they can be focused amplifiers. Yeah. Used, uh, as, you, as you really do point out really well here, used in a responsible manner. With a sense of structure, yeah, and, and I'm I'm kind of a right wing nut about uh, responsible and structure, not because I don't think that if people want to go to a concert and have a little psychedelic and watch the stage lights wiggle, that matters much. Yeah. But it's such a trivial use of one of the most valuable tools you have. Right. And I used to talk about people saying. Well, I've got this great tool. It's called a microscope, and it's heavy, and you have a great handle, and it's a fantastic doorstop. <laughs> and I'd say, well, yeah, but it has other uses. And you say, well, okay, it has other uses, but hey, look at this doorstop. Yeah. 
That's good. So my feeling is when people tell me, yeah, I, you know, I dropped this and I dropped that and I could, um, you know, and the sand wiggled and my hands kind of turned into webs. <laughs> and I think, yeah. Right. How about, how about the way it's been used by sophisticated civilizations like the people in South America or the ancient Greeks? I mean, we forget that the Ellicinian mysteries revolved around a psychedelic. Right. They were only for the highest class of the culture, the people who mattered, the people who made changes, people who led armies and invented things. And it lasted for 1,500 years. Yeah. As the center of, a, of the culture from which we say we're descended. Yeah, right. And then you get the, 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 the real crazy, the real true crazy, hard to the right sort of people. And they're really denying their roots. Yeah. Yeah, they're denying their roots, and they're also when it, when a person is truly cut off from connection with other people, with nature, with themselves, they obviously behave in a somewhat blind manner. Yeah, and we're seeing, of course, at the moment a lot of blindness. Um, I mean, the idea that you go to somebody else's country and shoot them—you <laughs> um, don't take a hammer and beat up one of your fingers. <laughs> because you can really tell that you are connected to your finger. Right. And when you lose track of that, and there are people who do lose track of that, and, you know, literally harm themselves, and if you're connected with other human beings, you can't harm them either unless you have no awareness of that connection. Well well, well put, mate. Well put. <laughs> You know, while, while we're dancing around this and, and, you know, the roots and the denial of a lot of contemporary culture for all that, um, would you mind talking a little bit, you know, I'm picking at your book here because uh, this is probably a good point. You talked about myths and uh, misperceptions, and I yeah, think it would be good for people to hear about there's that. There's a whole chapter in the book which basically says this is the kind of things that are out there that simply aren't true and confuse people about psychedelic use. Yeah, And I had not intended to kind of have that, but uh, a Stanford girl was doing some research and interviewed me, and she really knew a lot about the world. She had uh, already as an undergraduate done research in Africa. She was clearly going to be very successful and was already very smart. And she had some psychedelic experience. And then in the middle of the interview, she says, Oh, by the way, is it true that if you take LSD seven times, you go insane? <laughs> and I thought, what? <laughs> that was as if she'd said to me, is it true you have intercourse seven times and you're sterile? I mean, it had as little sensibleness as that. And I said, where'd you get that? And she said, well, I don't know, people say that. So I looked it up on Snopes, which you go to for when someone sends you an email that says something horrible will happen. Check it out. Yeah. And it's out there. And there's a lot of that kind of nonsense. And in some places, even when they are doing the best they can, I'm thinking of things I've seen from, say, a student health organization from a major university, you know, trying to tell students about psychedelics. And there's a lot of confusion between what they say that's true and what they say that is absolute myth. And so I thought, it, let's put the myths in there and take a look at them so that, again, we can operate. Um, truth simply is better than the alternative. Yeah. I, uh, 
I remember when I was a kid first experimenting, and there, the big deal then was that uh, LSD uh, screws up your chromosomes. Right. And then uh, somehow I got to the mindset that if I had sex while I was on acid, then the baby would be retarded. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, and I went through years and years and years of I wouldn't allow, if I was tripping, I wouldn't allow any sexual thoughts in there at all because I was paranoid. <laughs> well, and is it... Um one of the things that I just discovered when I was down in Santa Cruz, and I was talking to over 300 students, and I asked them about their own psychedelic use, and the people who'd come to listen to me obviously had some experience, or, or or intended to, but most of them had a lot of experience, undergraduates. And then I just threw out, how many of you have parents who'd use psychedelics? And about 80% of them raised their hands. And I realized here's a two generations of people who are trying not to get caught up in the myths, who are actually getting information, and who are raising their children with enough information so they can make healthy decisions. I was actually very uh, impressed and aware of there is so much more psychedelic use in this country than any of us, even those of us who think we know a lot, are aware of. And the, the figure that I love, because it's from the federal government, and after all, you know, you can't <laughs> trust the government. Uh, according to them, 23 million Americans have used LSD since it became illegal. Wow. And that figure, because I've been tracking it, goes up 600,000 a year. All right. Just pretty much brain or shine. Yeah. So there's 600,000 people this year who are going to be taking, that's just LSD, that doesn't deal with, with ecstasy or ayahuasca or anything else. So there's this growing, continual, large number of people, and they tend to be better educated mm-hmm. uh, and brighter. We do have research on that. So what I'm doing a lot with this book is simply saying, hey, it's okay to admit what is true. Yeah. Which is the person... Next to you at your work probably had some acid in their background just as you did. Yeah, right. That's good. That uh it brings up a point too. Um you know, when I when I was doing my experimenting at a young age, there was God knows half the shit I took or what it came from or what it was and mm-hmm. uh I got into trouble a few times here and there. Um because there wasn't any no no precedent for what I was doing. Exactly. No, no one you knew could tell you anything. Exactly. So I had to find out the hard way, and, uh, which was crash and burn. But it is always better when you have somebody uh, as a guide. I've guided a number of people through the years. And um, I know you have extensive experience with that. So I thought maybe this could be, if, if you don't mind, maybe giving a sure. little riff on, on you know, uh, what is it? responsible guidance and you know that that kind of thing yeah well the a guide basically is there so that uh, in some way a little bit so you won't get in trouble but mainly they're there so you can feel safe enough to really discover whatever it is that you're allowed to discover that time Mm -hmm. and it's to me it's similar to having a guide when you're on safari right you know where the guide doesn't interfere with your experience but, you know, you're walking along and there's this kind of little mound and you're tired and you think, I'll just sit down on this mound. And your guide says, you can do that if you want, 
But we have a word for that in Swahili, and in English it translates as anthill. <laughs> I, you know, it's up to you. Yeah. And later on, there you are later in the day, and he says, I'd look over there. And you look over there, and there's a bunch of elephants. And yeah. a little later he says, you know, you see that uh, rhinoceros that's coming towards us? I don't know about you, but I'd stand behind a tree. <laughs> so he's not preventing you having your experience. Right. But he's making it, when necessary, helpful and better. Right. And that's really what a guide is about. And so that's, 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 and a guide should have basically have know more than you do, been there more often, and because they feel safe with very unusual experiences, should you have one, they're there to say that's fine. So, for instance, it's not unusual in a psychedelic experience for someone to say, I think I'm dying. And if you're like most of us, that's scary. And you say to your guide, I think I'm dying. And your guide says, oh, that's great. Uh, just relax and you'll see what that's about. And then inside yourself you think, oh, I just said, I think I'm dying. Yeah, I didn't say I was dying. Maybe I'm not dying. Maybe there's something going on. I'll just do what he says. Mm -hmm. And so the guide allows people to have their own experience. Right. And the guide's agenda is to have absolutely no agenda except whatever is best for that person. Yeah, how, how it unfolds. And so I've got a couple of chapters in the book that are about how to be a really good guide and also how to be a really good voyager. And just so we are clear that although I'd like people to have the book, uh, those chapters have been put up on the web and they're found under intheoguide.net, intheoguide.net. And it's a site that I have nothing to do with, but people said, would you put those chapters there? And we're going to put a lot of other things to help people have good sessions. That's and great. So that's available because I think it's it's too important to do it poorly. And let me give you my kind of why I think it's important. Mm -hmm. um, research, hundred people, all of whom had a single psychedelic experience, but guided and in a safe setting and with music and kind of the best we could come up with. And they were asked to rank that experience as how important was that in terms of all the other experiences of your whole life. 78% of them said it was the single most important experience of their lives. And I look at that and I think, if it's potentially that important, why don't we do it right? Mm -hmm. Why don't we do it as right as possible? Yeah. And so that's why I'm a... A veritable guide nut, which is, it's really helpful. Just as when people are out drinking and someone says, you know, we should have a designated driver so that somebody can guide us home. Right. And nobody says, oh, don't be silly. Let's all get as drunk as possible and, you know, then we'll throw lots for who drives. Nobody does that. Right. So it's it's the reason behind guiding is that it's too valuable and too important to not do it as well as you can. That's a great, great analogy. By, by the way, uh, for you listeners, Lorenzo's going to post that uh, 
on the uh, podcast page, that link. Great. So people can get to it. Do you have any other uh, – do you have a – I don't remember, Jim, so forgive me. Do you have your own web page or any other place you yeah, want to Yeah, I do. JamesFadiman.com has a whole bunch of, of talks um, at the moment. Okay. So there's a fair amount of information okay. about various topics. Yeah, I've been there, but it's been like months and months, so my brain's a bit mush. <laughs> but um, so there's good therapeutic uses, and there's there's guided journeys, and then like you say, somebody takes something and go watch the lights at a rock show, and uh, you know the ground wiggles and all that. Um, you want to touch a little bit on. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't have to go too far into this, but you want to touch a little bit on what could go wrong? Sure. What goes wrong, and this is why I'm so in on guides, is, is basically the basics, and most people talk this way now, which is when Tim Leary started, he talked about set and setting. And set is what are your mental expectations, and setting is what's the situation. And when I ask a group to talk about their bad trips or their challenging trips that have been difficult and what made them difficult, most people will immediately say, I, I know what went wrong. Um, I realized I didn't trust the people I was with. Um, I, I thought, oh, no, you just don't take this when you're about to, you know, ride the New York subways. That's just not the right setting. And kind of my favorite comment from someone was, the session was really going well until the car caught on fire. <laughs> so that's not a good setting. <laughs> so when things are disruptive, or if you've been, uh, worst case is if you've been what's called dosed, which means somebody snuck it to you. Yeah. And that to me is like one of the, you know, that's a crime way up there with rape in my book. I agree. Um, and I know people um, in the Burning Man world who, who help people. That's their task at Burning Man. They're called the Green Rangers. Right. And they talk about people who basically are dosed by their date, and it gets sexual, and it gets crazy, and the person doesn't know what's going on. And that's a terrible experience. Yeah. So what goes wrong is not taking it seriously. Right. And not knowing what you're taking or who you're taking it with. Yeah. And so, you know, think of it, you know, you're in a foreign country and there's something on the road and someone says, why don't you try eating that? <laughs> and you think, I have no idea what it is and I have no idea. I've never met this person who suggested it. Maybe it's not a good idea. Yeah. Maybe it's dog shit, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's a... Uh, uh... A good answer. So now that we uh, dipped into the dark side there, so to speak, <laughs> stepped in the dark side, um, how about, if you don't mind, we could just talk a little bit about, uh, you, know, you know, there are there are levels here like, okay, there, there there's spiritual experience revelation. Right. And then there's therapy. And then there's uh, creative problem solving. Yep. And so there are have been really – Big gains in those areas in, in the past few years where things, you know, the research is coming out a little bit more and the government well, is lighting what, what up. We're, what most of the research has been is kind of proving what most of us in this community already know. But there's been a few genuine breakthroughs, particularly in the therapy area, where uh, it turns out that 
uh, psychedelics can actually prevent cluster headaches. And cluster headaches are, um, they make migraines look like you'd enjoy them. Mm. They are so horrifyingly painful that people will literally commit suicide rather than have another series of cluster headaches. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that and modern medicine simply has very little that's of any good. Right. But it turns out, and we have no idea why, and I always like that kind of science, Sure. is somebody of the 23 million people took LSD and then noticed that the next series of cluster headaches didn't come. Mm-hmm. And we started communicating with other cluster headache sufferers because that's what the web is so good at. And it seems to be that it is one of the really miracle, um, not necessarily a cure, but it prevents a cycle or two of these headaches, and then you take a psychedelic again and you get another couple of maybe six months or a year without these terrible headaches. Wow. And so now they're doing research at Harvard to find out whether this is true. And, of course, since it is true, they're probably going to find out that it's true. And then they'll publish it and so forth and so on. And the medical profession then will have the option of this very remarkable tool. And, because uh, when you you know when you haven't been able to do research for forty years, you obviously are are missing things. Yeah, you think? <laughs> um, I mean, let me give you an example. A study I'd love to do is just called stuttering. Why might psychedelics help stuttering? Well, what I remember very much when I was working with individuals in this kind of safe, secure therapy-like setting is that people who had speech problems tended not to have them during the day. And we would be able to determine when they were coming down by the return of speech problems. Wow. Now, this is also true about uh, glasses. People would take off their glasses early in the day, and they would be able to, to see as well as they wished for many hours, and then... Near the end of the day, they'd ask for their glasses. But the stuttering, um, I hadn't looked at too seriously, but I now have two cases of someone who cured themselves of stuttering in one psychedelic session. Mm-hmm. And one of them is Paul Stamets. And oh, Paul yeah. Stamets is, you know, the most important, famous mycologist in America. Right. And he talks about when he was 15, taking some kind of mushroom, and he was a terrible stutterer, so that the idea of dating was out of the question. And let us go back to that most frightening time of our lives called high school, when there was that other sex, and you wanted them in some obscure way that you didn't quite understand. And imagine if you stuttered. So he'd kind of given up, and then a day or so after this amazing experience, he's somewhere in high school, and a girl goes by and says hello, and he says, hello. And he's just in ecstasy, because he said hello. And he could talk to people, and obviously it transformed his life. Well, um, the stuttering world doesn't really know about this. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, as we begin to, you know, make the world again safe to find out about psychedelics, this is a piece of research that's a wonderful, easy to do, and you can obviously see whether it succeeds or not. Wow. And so I'm kind of collecting those cases, and if anybody out there has cured themselves of stuttering, can they 
send a note to jfadiman at gmail. That's one word, jfadiman. And let me know. I'm collecting really cures for things because that alerts the in the regular medical world that this is worth exploring. Right. So you people out there hear that. If you got something, you can be part of some really important research. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. Let me give you one that isn't a psychedelic. It's marijuana, but I'm fascinated. There's a video out there, and it's this very nice young woman talking about the possibility that if you take the juice of marijuana leaves, and that's what's thrown away, but literally juice the leaves, and that turns out, in some cases, to overcome the symptoms of epilepsy. Wow. Because the, the drugs that are out there for epilepsy, and the most well-known was something called Dilantin, they do uh, suppress epilepsy. But they also make you feel like you're sleepy and dumb. And as I listen to this very vivacious, interesting woman talk about it, what you get as you watch the video is, oh, it's her. She was someone who'd been dulled by the lantern and was now symptom-free um, drinking this liquid. And the point that she said is that what happens when you smoke marijuana is you it, it undergoes some chemical changes so that the juice is really uh, not particularly, you know, doesn't get you high, but it has this remarkable property. And so that's, you know, I haven't followed it up, um, but I, if I were, you know, interested in epilepsy, I sure would. Sure. So there's a lot of interesting things out there that because we're now allowed to do the tiniest bit of research, we are discovering. Uh-huh. And and the last one that kind of is very exciting because it's a huge population is post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. Which, again, the traditional medical uh, model is, is kind of tranquilizers and suppression, and it doesn't work very well. Mm-hmm. So that people who've been in therapy with, with drugs for, say, 30 years because of, or 40 years because of Vietnam still are not much better. Right. And there has been some really breakthrough research that MAPS put out with MDMA, with ecstasy, that it in a, is part of therapy, what they call MDMA-assisted therapy, can break the cycle of post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. And they're now working with veterans. And then you start the numbers. We have probably between four and 700,000 veterans of the last kind of nutty wars right. coming back with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it's not a psychological condition. It's a condition really that's deeper, that's really kind of the soul. Yeah. Because it isn't that you've been fired on by other people. That's scary, but it's not the depth of the problem. It's when you've been basically in fear 24 hours a day, seven days a week, of of the people you're supposed to be liberating and saving. Right. And that... Many, many of our soldiers have either killed or attempted to kill civilians. Yeah. And what do you do when you're in your Humvee and you're driving and there's some children playing in the road? And your your sergeant says, drive. It might be a trick. Mm-hmm. And it might be. It might be if you stopped, you get blown up. Right. So you drive over the children. Yeah. And then, because this is war and this is macho, you can't really let go of that trauma. 
right? Well, it turns out with MDMA, you can really become a healthy human being again. Right. And the first group of research that was published is a lot of people who were admitted to the study. Um, by the end of the study, they were fully employable, and they basically didn't have enough symptoms to get back in the study. Right. So, so uh, that's another whole area that's just, that's new, and that's really exciting. Yeah. Can I, can I ask you one more loaded, jaded, sinister kind of question? Load up. <laughs> Fire at will. Fire at will, yeah. We'll find will somewhere. Um, I, I know in, in the uh, reading I've done on the MDMA uh, PTSD studies, more often than not, the uh, subjects need maybe two, maybe three sessions then right. they're guided by psychotherapy and they're done. They don't need to keep taking MDMA. They may want to, but, I mean, they don't have to, whereas they would be on, say, Valium or some other Exactly. They thing. come off of medications because they don't have any symptoms. Right. And, and it's, So what's the loaded question? Well, here's the thing. Um, like, like LSD uh, and the cluster headaches, it breaks the cycle, and it sounds to me like with enough of that, you wouldn't have to need constant medication either. Would that be a fair statement from what you know? Well, what I'm, I'm, I'm not as quite clear because they are looking at it. But yeah. it looks like with cluster headaches, literally, uh, if you're a sufferer, you can put a date on the calendar when the next series is going to okay. come. Okay. So what I'm driving at is, do you think there's going to be resistance from pharmaceutical companies who want to have a debit on your credit account so you get your Valium every week? Do you think there's going to be resistance to this new, these new breakthroughs that are happening? With, you know, one right, or two let, me give you, let me give you the one where the resistance is going to start. <laughs> uh, antidepressants, which are the most popular drugs yes. in the country. That's what I'm driving at. Maybe 10% of the population is on them. They're a daily drug. Right. Pharmaceutical companies obviously love daily drugs. Right. And they may not work very well, but getting off them will give you withdrawal. Right. So they, they meet a lot of the criteria for addiction. Mm -hmm. You don't up the dose, which is one kind of addiction, but you can't stop taking them. Right. And when you start on an antidepressant, it's two to three weeks before any effects will be found, mm -hmm. which always seems very bizarre. Yeah. You know, if I take an aspirin for a headache, I don't want to wait three weeks. Yeah. No kidding. So ketamine, which is a, an odd drug, it's it's... It happens to be legal. It's used in veterinary medicine. It's an anesthetic. Yeah. But in a, in a lower dose than for anesthesia, it has some psychedelic effects. And it turns out that it seems to, in the one or two studies now, stops depression in a couple hours. Wow. And in terms of your question, it seems to stop it for a couple of weeks. Right. So if you move from... An antidepressant daily to another another pharmaceutical, but every couple of weeks, that's very different. Yeah, it's going to hit. So the if we're going to get any resistance from the pharmacology world, <clears throat> that's it. See, there's yeah. no resistance with cluster headaches because we don't have anything. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, good point. And there's there isn't really resistance with the um, MDMA and, and post traumatic stress. Um, because it's such a monstrous problem, and again, we don't have anything that's very good. Good. Excellent. Good point. Good, so, good. 
So the nice thing is there's enough ways in which we can use psychedelics successfully um, for healing of various kinds of things. But just as in a sense, um, one of the questions that you might have said is, well, if psychedelics at a high dose can give you mystical experiences, they're going to be pushed back from the churches. <laughs> and the answer is, in the 60s, there was. Yeah. And what I'm seeing now is there is remarkably little resistance to any of these breakthroughs. Hmm. And let me give you kind of my favorite example, which is at John Hopkins University, they did a study. They found out, and this is not going to excite anybody in this audience, that if you take people who wish to have a spiritual experience, who are mentally very healthy and involved in spiritual practices, and you give them psilocybin, in a spiritual setting, with a spiritual, basically, set setting and guide, that, whoa, they have spiritual experiences. And, like the 78% I talked about earlier, most of them indicate it's with, you know, one of the top five experiences of their lives, and the positive results in terms of the way they look at their lives seem to last a couple of years, and that's as long as we've been watching them. Well, that's the study. And it appeared in one of those peer-reviewed, up, you know, up-at-the-top scientific, really dull journals. But within a week of its appearance, there were 300 media mentions around the planet. Wow. Now, where was the media mentions? Well, sure, high times and so forth. But how about the Wall Street Journal? Mm. Now, the Wall Street Journal really isn't a big outlet for good psychedelic research results. If you're, particularly if you're in the Occupy movement, they're not big Wall Street Journal people. <laughs> you think not, huh? <laughs> but there was this article in the Wall Street Journal. But the one that I love, because it says how far the culture has moved, is the Scottish Sporting News. Hmm. Now, the Scottish Sporting News had a little story, and the headline was, Shrooms Get You High. Okay? Yeah. Now, what that says to me is that the readers of the Scottish Sporting News knew what that meant. Yeah. Okay? And that the headline writer knew it was a good headline. And whoever, you know, was the editor of the day who was looking at the, at the, that issue thought that was fine. So we're in a culture where there's so much more, um, not tolerance, that's, that suggests you don't know what you're talking about, but you're nice about it. But genuine knowledge about the way these things work. Yeah. So when you then add science to it, there's a lot of acceptance. Nice. And the, 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 the kind of the last people to get it are going to be legislators and regulators. Yeah. But even the regulators, as I meet many of them, you, you know, I say, oh, you're a regulator about such and such, pharmaceutical, so forth. Do you ever have any psychedelic experience? And they, like almost everyone else I meet as a professional, says, oh, yeah, you know, you know, once in college, yeah. and this kind of misty look comes into their eyes. <laughs> you know, I remember running down the streets of my college town naked <laughs> and yelling, what are you all doing hiding in your clothes? <laughs> Right, and then you know the kind of dreamy look goes away, and the the uh, three piece suit and the tie you know kind of reemerge, 
And the person said, that was a long time ago. Yeah. But what I know is those people are probably doing a much better job of genuinely regulating right. rather than witch hunting. Yeah. Good, good, good. Um, the world is changing. Yes. Do you... Uh, now, do you... Port Portugal decriminalized everything. And I say everything, meaning heroin, cocaine, everything. Wow. At Ten years ago. Yeah. So what happened? Well... Everything that we think should did, right. which is use went down. Marijuana use went down. Heroin use went down. Everything went down. And treatment went up because the law said you're allowed to get treatment, and we have treatment for you if you need it. So yeah. people didn't, you know, weren't afraid to get treatment because if you get treated for illegal things, does that mean they send you to jail? Mm -hmm. Well, not if it's not illegal. Now, the big one, of course, is crime went down. Yeah. So here we have a 10-year experiment with a, you know, civilized country mm -hmm. with a sizable minority population from their African colonies. It's not as different from the U.S. as, as you know, our kind of drug czars would like to think. Right. And it's all working really well towards everyone being healthier. So those are the things that are happening, and those are very exciting. Awesome. Um, do, you, do you have any final words of wisdom for us? Um, how much time do I have? <laughs> how much as, wisdom? As much as you want. What did you want, dude? Because this isn't, you know, this isn't like network television. We're we're psychedelic <laughs> podcasters here, so we can go on for hours if you want. <laughs> no, 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 no. Short wisdom. <laughs> Short wisdom is is that that there's nothing better than information about what you're interested in doing to your own body and mind, and that you do have the right to do things to your own body and mind as long as they don't hurt other people. And I recommend always that when people ask me really tricky questions of using two or three drugs at once or doing it while hanging upside down, kind of bizarre stuff, I say go to the Airwood site, yeah. look in the vaults, because someone has done something weirder than anything you've imagined, and they've told you about it, whether it was good or awful. And so we really have a great information store that was never available before. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, is I go back to saying if it's really important and it really could make your life better, do it as carefully and as wisely and as sacredly as possible because you are fundamentally part of a sacred universe that is linked together just the way the atoms in your body are linked together. And knowing that makes your life both richer and easier, and also when things are particularly awful, you have something to, to fall back on other than how could, you know, how could we destroy the planet with climate change and how could we have all these wars and so forth and so on. Uh, it protects you from the depression by realizing that you are part of a larger system and that you have each one of us actually can do something about it, even if it's only to clean up our own heads. That's enough wisdom. That's awesome, bro. That, this is I'm not, I, I'm, thank you. I'm not, and I'm not blowing sunshine up your ass here, but this is one of the best interviews I've done. So I'm well, good shit here. I think it's probably because I'm so fond of both of you. Well, the, the feeling's mutual. Okay. Sure. 
And, and you know, Jim, uh, I'm, I'm sitting here. I've got two podcasts that will have to go out before this because we're podcasting the workshop that Bruce and I did. But uh, I've been sitting here thinking, my gosh, I wish I could get this out tonight. You know, I'm, I'm really sorry we've taken so long to get, get this interview in because uh, well, we, this is important. When the timing was correct. Yeah, and and I uh, the timing is is really correct. I think this information is uh, is fantastic that you put together here, and I I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us today. Well, I am delighted to you know it's wonderful to hang out with friends and to get to share what is most wonderful and exciting in your lives. Amen. I I so, want to. Uh, you guys get to be this wonderful. You know, remember the the the, the name of the gospel. They're called the good news. They say, hey, I got hey. some good news for you. There you go. <laughs> so you guys are, you know, our version of gospel guys. Uh, well, r- right on. <laughs> now I want to sing a spiritual from my high school choir days. Yeah, yeah. They, they. So um, I want to reiterate that uh, Jim's novel, The Other Side of Hate, H-A-I-G-H-T, uh, highly recommended reading. I really, I did enjoy it. I read it in like a couple of days. And his newest book, just out a couple months now, is uh, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Safe, therapeutic, and sacred journey. So thank you, Jim, for, uh, for being on the show, and thank you for taking the time to talk to our audience. They're really hungry for the wisdom that you do have. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, both of you. Thank you, Jim. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, we'll, we'll, I'm sure this will bring some questions and stuff in from the kids, and uh, we'll try to oh, do yeah. this again in the future here. Well, if we need to do it again, we're just going to grit our teeth and do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, guys. Just- or we'll just get together and tell sea stories or something. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Jim. Well, thanks again, and take care now. Okay. Take care, bro. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So before I say anything else, I want to make it clear that, in my opinion, this book is uh, an important one to add to your psychedelic library. And if you don't already have the beginnings of a psychedelic library, this is the perfect book with which to begin. And I have to admit that as much as I like my Kindle, uh, it really feels good uh, here in my little office to be surrounded by hundreds of books and uh, a good many of them of the psychedelic genre. Uh, After all, if uh, that prediction of a major solar flare in the next 20 years comes true, all of our electronic books may become inaccessible. Now that I think of it, perhaps uh, the question about what books you would want with you if you were marooned on a desert island, uh, maybe it isn't so hypothetical after all. <laughs> but uh, we better not go down that rabbit trail right now. Now to uh, make my point about the value of Jim's book even stronger, I want to play a short conversation that I had the other day in which I asked my dear friend, Wild Bill Radzinski, to give me his comments about Jim Fadiman's new book. And uh, for what it's worth, I've seen Bill's psychedelic library, and without a doubt, it's the most comprehensive that I've ever come across. And uh, I've seen my share of them. But there are few people walking around today uh, who have a wider grasp of psychedelic literature of all stripes than uh, Wild Bill. And here he is. Well, it's, um, I, didn't, I haven't read the little section of the end called Last Words, which is kind of like, you know, his, his little end piece. And uh, I skimmed <clears throat> the checklist for the entheogenic journal journeys and stuff. I'm going to go back to that stuff. But I, I just completed the book, and, and I just think it's just, thank God, where was this back in 1970 when I really needed it? Uh, 
it's 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 a beautifully written book too. Uh, I, I, there there you know has a couple items in here from uh, from other other people or written with other people, but uh, his voice in the book is really it, it, it's uh, it's a really beautiful voice. I can't think of a guy who speaks better for psychedelics today. Yeah, you know, and he's uh, he's this man. Yeah, he's uh, he around. doesn't have all the. You know, he doesn't have a little bit of flash, and he's not looking to collect a bunch of groupies and shit, uh, like some of the people on the circuit. Uh, uh, it's, 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 uh, it, if, if, if someone was going to start out doing it with psychedelics, I'd say, take a real good read of this book first. And I think anybody wants to know about psychedelics. But even people who are not, you know, in, in, involved in it all and like to know what's going on. This is a wonderful book, especially when he talks about all the research and the stuff. It, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's heartbreaking. And, and you've, you've, got, got, you've got a lot of books. <laughs> you've got a lot oh, of books. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've got a lot of books. It, this is, first of all, it's, it's very clear, straightforward. Uh, I've read some books by people with essays where people get so involved in their, their uh, and it's intellectual masturbation. You know, I, I just get lost and I just put it down. This man really grabs a hold of you and, and plain, you know, plain English tells you exactly what's going on, uh, the work that they did. Um, you see how much promise and potential there was and how it all got flushed down the tubes. Um, the, the part about psychedelic diets and, um, is just, uh, is, is really well written. The book is, is really, it's, it's, Beautifully written. It's a book you can really get comfortable with. Matter of fact, you can you can uh, you can skip chapters and go back to them. Go back around. You can kind of pick and choose if you want. Although I pretty much went from uh, from front to back. But it, it's uh, it's a beautifully written book, and uh, there's some great stuff in here. There's uh, there's some great passages that are absolutely just. Really, do you mind if I read one to you? No, go ahead. Go ahead. This, this is my, my one of my favorite passages. It's in the chapter closing the doors of perception, and it's about it's three paragraphs. I'm going to read this short, <clears throat> and it's under the title of a moment of reflection. Why did our drug research frighten the establishment so profoundly? Why does it still frighten them? Perhaps because we're able to step off or toss off the treadmill of daily stuff and saw the whole system of life, death, life. We discovered that love is the fundamental energy of the universe, and we wouldn't shut up about it. What we found out was that the love is there, the forgiveness is there, and the understanding and compassion are there. But like water to a fish or air to a bird, it is there, all around us, and it exists without any effort on our part. There is no need for the Father, the Son, the Buddha, the saints, the Torah, the books, the bells, the candles, the priests, the rituals, or even the wisdom. It is just there, so preserved, so pervasive and so unending that it is impossible to see as long as you are in the smaller world of people separated from one another. No wonder enlightenment is always a crime. <laughs> wow. You know That's amazing. That's really well well put, isn't it? That's a yeah, that's a beautiful that's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful uh description of this this awful dilemma that we're in. That these substances that hold so much promise and potential for good on this planet—I'm not even going to say society, because I, I, I don't get into the society thing. I'm into the planetary thing, and it's—and um, there's just so much fear and resistance about it uh, to this day. 
I mean, you, you can't you can't bring this stuff up in, 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 in even in liberal circles. That's a good point. Yeah, that uh, now you, know, you used to hawk, some of the biggest you know hawks in the war on drugs uh, are the liberals who should be you know a little bit more free thinking and progressive. But there is so much fear. You know, when I always get this, I had one woman whose son had a few problems with him. One time, so, well, what about bad trips? And you can't tell them, well, you know, a lot of experienced people say the bad trips are some of the best ones, the most enlightening ones. But people don't understand. Uh, they, and Jim's book really goes a long way to explaining, you know, what this stuff is about. People only get to hear about the accident reports in the mainstream pretty much. You know, with some exceptions, you know, like the the Peter Jennings special on MDMA. But the, the James Fadiman book, I mean, this guy this guy should be out on, on, on talk shows, talking to people, because he's such a reasonable man. He's such a reasonable man. He's just saying, let's, let's give science some breathing room. And this is more than, this is science and spirituality tied up in one. That's, that's what scares a lot of science types, too. You know, you know, you know, you know what? I, I, I just think so highly of this book. I wish it was a hardcover. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was a hardcover. Another comment I want to add on a personal level is to expand a little on what Jim Fadiman said just now about noticing how psychedelics seem to help people who have a stuttering problem. Although I wasn't aware before of the uh, positive impact these sacred medicines have on uh, stuttering. Uh, my own problem, if you want to call it that, because most of the time it's something I can probably uh, safely ignore. Although I wasn't uh, aware before of the uh, positive impact that these sacred medicines may have on stuttering, uh, my own problem, if you want to call it that, because most of the time it's something I can ignore, uh, but I have a relatively bad case of tinnitus, which means that I have a continual ringing in my ears, and at times it can really get quite irritating, to be honest. But I've noticed that when I'm under the influence of some psychedelics, the ringing in my ears goes away completely. Uh, and to be honest, uh, that is what I find to be one of the greatest pleasures of being high. Uh, I can actually for a while experience silence. You don't know how valuable that is if you never hear it. Now, that probably doesn't... <laughs> I guess that really sounds strange now if you don't have tinnitus yourself. But if you do, uh, then you know just what a wonderful treat it can be to not hearing this constant sound of a million crickets in the room. So if you're looking for a psychedelic research project that could help a lot of people, uh, maybe that's one you can investigate. I should also mention that you can hear more from Jim Fadiman if you go back to my podcast number 42, where he spoke about using psychedelics for rational work. And uh, also in podcast 235, you can hear Myron Stoloroff, Humphrey Osmond, and Al Hubbard's conversation uh, where they talk about Jim at one point. Now, uh, I'm not going to be able to get in my Occupy segment this week because the time that I normally have to gather that information has been taken up with another pursuit. What I've been doing lately is uh, to begin digitizing uh, a number of old television programs that I, that I did back in, uh, well, in the 80s and 90s while I was living in Tampa, Florida. 
Uh, and I hope to have them up uh, on YouTube here in, a, in another week or so. And what you may find interesting about uh, at least the first one, had you not known that it was filmed in 1989 or so, uh, that you'd probably think that it was a documentary about a current Occupy action. It's, uh, it's a documentary I did about the story of a hunger fast by John Standing Eagle in an attempt to uh, block an open-burn incinerator near where he lived. Uh, what I find most interesting about it uh, today, actually, is that in the background you see a number of small children who were there with their parents. And uh, if my math is correct, uh, they are now about the age of many of the women and men who have taken to occupying various public spaces. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the kids in my old documentary are now leaders of the local Occupy somewhere. At, <laughs> at least that's my latest fantasy. And uh, so I'm going to uh, have to leave it there for today, uh, at least if I'm going to have any hope at all of getting, getting this thing online pretty soon. Uh, it's been too long since my last podcast, I think. As I said in the beginning, though, uh, I think that this could be perhaps the most important podcast that I've done. And I hope that if you are just now gaining an interest in psychedelics, that you listen to this again and, and with your parents. Of course, I also know that uh, there are some saloners who are approaching my age and uh, who are just now getting interested as well. <laughs> and if so, my advice to you is uh, that you re-listen to this, uh, but with your children and grandchildren. In other words, uh, no matter what your age or how much you already know about this subject, I think that the uh, information Jim Fadiman passed along just now and in his new book is as good a jumping-off point into the psychedelic pool as you're going to find. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.